Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now, you know how teenagers say silly things when they're setting fire to your kitchen or making a giant mess? My son set fire to the toaster the other day and 17-year-old boys stomping around uh, in the kitchen. And he said, well, none of this would happen if we had a see-through toaster. (laughs) And I was a bit cross and then I thought, actually, that sounds like quite a good idea, a see-through toaster. Because you could tell then, couldn't you, what was happening to your hot cross buns as you were ramming them into your toaster? You could, but you'd have to be you'd have to be paying attention, which as we know the teenagers, as soon as they do something, they immediately forget about it. So they... they do exist though. I Googled them, but they're like twenty thousand pounds or something. <laughs> what? A see through toaster. And then you'd just see all the sort of cruddy crap inside, wouldn't you? All the bits. You'd be cleaning it all the time, wouldn't you? Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we are experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. If you're in need of a good read, you've come to the right place, lovely listeners, because this week's episode is our season 11 book club special. And we'll be speaking to a fabulous British author later on who's written a gem of a Gen X book, as well as lots of other word-shaped treats, treats galore we have for you, don't we, Lorraine? We do, we do. When you say treats, Trish, you're not talking about those weird luxury biscuit things you give our podcast. Oh, I say our podcast, your podcast, Margot, my nemesis. No. Those ones you give her when you're trying to keep her yes. quiet when we're recording because she gets on the desk, doesn't she? Shows me her bum on the screen, <laughs> interrupts, purrs like some giant train going through. Yes, she she gave um, Adrian Adami a bit of a fright, didn't she? When she hopped up the other week, I have to say, a bit of a shock. This is joy, isn't it? Doing everything from home because mm. we just have to. Life goes on while we're trying to be professional yes. and work, doesn't it? It's always. I mean, you and your leaf blower, you and your leaf blower next door. He stops now, but the man next door's having his own peculiar midlife crisis. Oh gosh, go on. I'm saying this. He's taken up the bass guitar, Trish, so his lessons are at exactly the time we start recording. Podcasting, yes. So you're getting a sort of 
Boom, 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 boom. Not even that tuneful. I feel like he might have picked the wrong instrument to solve his midlife crisis. Dear, oh dear. Well, um, I had the plumbers in this morning. The boiler's gone again, which is what? It's not a euphemism. So I'm wearing this big furry jacket thing because uh, the boiler's gone. And I had someone trying to sell me dishcloths. You know, there's people who knock at the front door. You are dressed as Bungle from Rainbow <laughs> this morning, aren't you? I love, I love this. I just wish you were zippy because then I could zip you up sometimes, couldn't I? Yes, you do wish that, don't you? I also had this morning the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's been very busy. Oh, Glad I wasn't among them knocking on your door. Get that short shrift from Marion, your alter ego. Oh, God, especially when we're wearing my bungle outfit. Anyway, I'm sure our listeners don't want to hear any more <laughs> about the details of our working from home lives, as we know what a worldly, intelligent, curious group of women they all are. You know, I think they would like to hear, though. Not your French or your singing. No. They've told us they're not keen on that. It doesn't make them laugh. Well, I think you've said that. I, don't, I think everybody else is quite keen. But uh, no, what I think they'd like to hear is whether you can name any of the countries oh. that's, <laughs> that some of the newest members of our postcards community are tuning in from or signing up to our fabulous Facebook group from. Well, we are an international, global, intercontinental all across the universe podcasts. It's a midlife phenomenon, isn't it? But I know regular listeners um, know by now that I'm really bad at geography. <laughs> and I know that it gives you great delight when I get your oh. geography quiz answers on. If you had me on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you wouldn't have me on for the geography questions. Oh, no. Phone a friend. Definitely not. No. I could just do um, telly and swimming celebrities, biscuits, that kind of thing. You wouldn't want me for geography. Yeah, you do quite well on that. But I'm not going to get away with any old uh, trying to distract you, am I? Because you are going to do this blasted quiz. Yes, I am. Should we start with an easy one? Well, it won't be easy for me. I didn't even know where Lytham was. Winnipeg. Winnipeg. Oh, I know this one, Canada. Well done. Good. Start with a good one. Okay. Thank you. What about mm, Waterford? Waterford. <laughs> Sounds like a mill town. Come on. Hang on, there's a, there's a drawer in my uh, memory that's open, something to do with glass. Yes, come on, come on, easy. Well, the north no. somewhere. No, south. Taunton, Devon. It's in Ireland, you nitwit. Ireland, you say. I'm sorry, Irish listeners. Oh, my God. Right, what about Estepona? I think I could make a rhyme of that, some kind of rap. Go on. I feel like it's been in a rap. I'm not going to do it because I'll insult somebody and we'll get cancelled when I pretend to be a rap star. You're trying to buy time. Is it Serbia? It's in Spain, you nitwit. Double nitwit. This is giving you so much joy, Trish, isn't it? Oh, right. This is somewhere where you've been recently, so I'm giving you a clue here. I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong. It's spelled L-I-E-R. Lear. Lear. No, that's a bit French sounding. That's the wrong accent. Come on. Well, I've only been to Norway. Is it in Norway? Yes. Well done. She got it. Yeah, well done. Uh, I'm not even going to bother with Eugst East. Have you got a furball? You all right? My bungle furball. Should I <laughs> that spell O-E-G-S-T-G-E-E-S-T. Trish, you're quite fizzy today. 
aren't oh, no, you? Sorry, because you've I'm got a bit of jet lag, and I'm worried that we're going to get a bit of corpsing in a minute. We might get corpsing <laughs> or cancelling. Corpsing or cancelling. Go either way. <laughs> anyway, carry on now. I don't know where that is. Where is it? That place? That's in Holland or the Netherlands, because that's probably I've probably said it wrong, haven't I? I don't know the difference between Holland and the Netherlands. That's on my list of things to find out. That's why didn't I know that for the end of the show, isn't it? Why didn't I know that? We we need the answer though before we can do that. But yes, okay. But to finish off, I'm going to do a double whammy here because I've got a lovely postcards community letter, but also geography quiz question for you. So here we go. Lovely Josephine um, emailed us to say, Dear Trish and Rain, I am from Kampala. I came across your podcast last year and I listened to it almost every day while in the shower and while making breakfast. I've absolutely loved everything from Trisha's sensitivity which really resonates with me, to Lorraine's name dropping and her issues with Margot. I also know that Lorraine will not have a clue where Kampala is. No looking it up on Google while I'm saying this, just by the way. Anyway, thank you for everything, for the advice on diet, style, books, TV series, what to watch on Netflix, to the nostalgia noodles, which I love because I spent the 80s in the UK. Thank you for allowing me to enjoy my I don't give a F-U-C-K years. Well done, Trish and Lorraine. I hope to get to meet you one day. First of all, that's very lovely. Thank you, Josephine. Secondly, where is Kampala, Lorraine? Well, you're not going to believe this, but by coincidence, I was at a dinner party the other day and one of the people at the dinner party was doing some research on gorillas and was off to Kampala in Uganda. (gasps) Yay, well done. There. Oh, that's brilliant. I thought it sounded a bit like a cocktail first, Kampala. I'll have a Kampala. Kampala. Yeah, that's nice. Campari Kampala. I think we can make one of those up. So I did know that one. We're ending on a high. Well done. Well, Josephine said that she hoped she would get to meet us one day. Um, And anyone else who may be inclined to meet us, and they do tell us they would like to meet us, our lovely listeners, we're going to be doing something quite amazing, aren't we? We've got a series of events this year. And this time we've got our first ever retreat. Yes. It's called the Rest, Rejuvenate and Re-Energize Weekend. It's soon. It's on uh, running from March the 15th to the 17th. That's a weekend. And you can come and meet Trish and I and do some really wonderful things. We've got some great stuff lined up, haven't we? And where are we going, Trish? This is a part of the world I do know. Well, after four years, I'm finally making it down to North Cornwall, to your beloved North Cornwall. I mean, you have invited me, I have to say. So it's only my own fault that I haven't done it before. But yes, this is on the North Cornish coast in a beautiful hotel, San Moritz Hotel. We're going to be cold water swimming. We're going to be doing friendship walks. We're going to be meeting some really amazing women because you've got a brilliant community down there, haven't you? Of sort of everyone from makers, uh, writers, chefs, you people, all sorts of different people, haven't you? Well, it's fascinating, Cornwall, because it's so, so creative, um, such a beautiful part of the world. And we'll be staying at the San Ritz, which is near where I got married, at Damer Bay down there. We're going to be interviewing Cathy Rensenbrink while we're there, who uh, is a Sunday Times bestseller. She's written a brilliant book called How to Feel Better, which really will help you with the rest and rejuvenating bit. Um, and she lives in Falmouth, so she's going to be popping up. So anyone who comes on the retreat will be part of our live podcast recording. Yes. So come along. You can ask us a question. You can ask Kathy a question. We're going to be doing a sound bath. We're going to be looking at how you heal your nervous system and de-stress it uh, with an expert. 
and we've got the wonderful Emily Scott. She's just a fantastic local chef and she will be coming to talk about how you make cooking the basis for your life when you're going through all those changes in midlife because she's gone through quite a lot herself. So it's quite exciting. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. And, and it'll be small and intimate and private. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, it's like being on, on a weekend with a lovely group of girlfriends. So yes. we really hope you can join us. Get to see Trish in her swimming costume, which she <laughs> will have taken the sock that she found balled up in the gusset out of. Where can they go to book it to be with us, Trish? The Samaritz Hotel website. So Google that. Um, there's more information, I think, um, later on in the show. So you can get all the details on there. But back to this week's show, we're travelling north, a bit more north, aren't we? Because we're going up north all the way to Yorkshire, where our special guest, Jenny Godfrey, was born. She is uh, an author and she set her first novel, The List of Suspicious Things, in Yorkshire, and it's all about, sort of set in the late 70s, early 80s, it's about the Yorkshire Ripper, isn't it, from a young girl's point of view. But it's a beautiful story, not a scary story, and we're going to be finding out more about that and Jenny's own personal story, which is really interesting, isn't it? Well, it is. It's a huge reinvention, midlife reinvention. She's going to be giving us so much advice because what she's done is so different, and I think it's some of the things that we all want to do when we go through that stage of life. She had a big unravelling, pulled it together, did an amazing thing. Before Jenny joins us, though, we're going to be sharing our book club recommendations. So these are books we want to read and a couple of other tips for you, obviously, as well. We do share, don't we, Trish, quite a lot of books that we love on our Substack, which comes out twice a month. It's £5 per month, so £2.50 per episode. And it's a mini magazine and it's a newsletter on the platform Substack, and it's called Postcards from Lorraine and Trish. So have a look at that as well. Shall we get started on Book Club, Trish? Are you ready for it? Do it, do it. So, Book Club, little recommendations from both of us about what we're dying to read. But I think I should just mention, though, first and foremost, that your book, Lorraine, is out in paperback. Bam, Give it a little plug. I've set you up. I'm going to show you. Oh, there it is. Bright yellow cover. I'm going to get nails to match. Yes, it's out in paperback uh, now. And we've changed a bit of the wording on the front because I listened to what the lovely ladies told me when I met all these amazing midlife women uh, when I did the book tour with the hardback. So it's What's Wrong With Me? From Unraveling to Reinvention and Midlife memoir. And it's really all about my journey, but it's all the experts I interviewed and all the amazing women I interviewed about that stage uh, of your life when you think you're going to go mad and there's something terribly bad wrong with you. And actually there isn't. You can sort it all out and have this sort of lovely second act. It's a bit funny, I'm told. I did a book signing very recently in London at something called the How To Academy with lots of big authors. I couldn't believe I was there. I don't know why they asked me. Anyway, afterwards, an amazing woman came up to me. She was an A&E surgeon. She was in her 50s. And she said, thank you. I really didn't know much about this. I mean, I knew a bit about HRT and I've been looking at the... That is a really extraordinary thing to hear. A woman of that age working in the medical profession saying, I can't wait to read your book, which has already been out nearly a year. So we are still spreading the message. We are still getting it out there. So I will send out some signed copies on the Facebook group. But I thought we could do a little thing on the Facebook group where women tell us about their own, very shortly in the comments, 
their own unraveling and reinventions. Because for me, every time I do a book signing, women tell me the most extraordinary stories. They really do. Yeah, yeah. And I think if we put them all together, it might be helpful. I love it. It's the falling apart and putting yourself back together, isn't it? That's the challenge at this life stage. Right. Come on. What have you got for me? Oh, you know how the other week we did a, a nostalgia noodle about uh, me finding my books in the loft that have been sitting there for 20 odd years. I rediscovered Armistead Morpin's Tales of the City. Amazing. You're not going to believe this. He's only gone and got another instalment, the 10th instalment coming out. It's been a bit of a gap. Isn't that funny? Do you think that's an asking the universe, a sort of putting it out there thing? But anyway, Armistead Morpin has kindly written just for me <laughs> a new book called Mona of the Manor. Not the most scintillating title. It's what they might put on your um, gravestone, <laughs> yes. mightn't it? And that's Mona the name, not Mona yes, the right. um, yeah. yes, the personality <laughs> right? But basically, it's there was a character in um, Tale of the Tales of the City series called Mona Ramsey, and she marries Lord Teddy Roughton to secure his visa in the US, I suppose. See, the problem is I've forgotten most of the storyline, so I think I'm going to have to go back and read the other nine before I read this one. But anyway, it's kind of zooms forward um, to the 90s. She's 48, and then she stays with Lord Teddy and becomes the owner of this big country manor in the UK. And so it's sort of set there, and it's all about her life there. Obviously, they're going to be having their friends, Michael... Mouse Tolliver, the main star of Tales of the City, and uh, Anna Madrigal are coming to visit. But I just love it. I love the idea of that. Well, I think we'll all have to read that. Everyone's going to have to read that. But will we have to read the other nine again first? I don't know. I did keep those. Didn't send those to the charity shop. You could do a little Google and just re-educate yourself on the characters, couldn't you, Trish? Yes. Yes, I think. A quickie. Yes. So that's Mona, M-O-N-A, of the Manor by Armistead Morpin. Well, I've gone for modern. Okay. For you, Trish. I've gone to Australia a little bit. So this is a book um, that people are calling The Next Normal People. It's got a real buzz about it. I'm hearing it whenever I go to my bookie things. It's called Green Dot by Madeline Gray, and it's just come out. It's Feidenfeld and Nicholson in the UK. It's about a woman having an affair that's a really, really bad idea. Katna mm. Moran says every sentence sparkles. She's one of our guests on the show. And she says, if you like Fleabag, you will like this. It's brilliant, riveting, dark, funny. It's set in Sydney, which is somewhere I, I love to go. I love to go somewhere in fiction that I'm not at that present time. Yes, as long as you know where it is. Well, I know where Sydney is, Trish, but no, my honeymoon. You know where Sydney is, good. Um, the Guardian said it's a debut novel that is carried by the self-aware snark of the besotted protagonist, an endearingly messy 20-something. So it sounds kind of like a Gen Z Bridget Jones, which I find fascinating. I've been following Madeline uh, Gray on Instagram. She is uh, very funny. And the film rights already been sold to Green Dot. So I think that is definitely one to look out for. Madeline used to be an art critic and a book critic. She's an academic and she just writes very funny pieces. So Green Dot by Madeline Gray. Oh, clever person with a sense of humour. I like that. That could be said, I think, also for Kylie Reid, who is next on my list. Now, that's Kylie, K-I-L-E-Y, not K-Y. What was her first book? It was brilliant. Well, it was called Such a Fun Age. So she's actually American. She's an American Kylie as opposed to an Australian Kylie. Um, 
Her first book, Such a Fun Age, do you remember? It was absolutely brilliant. It was kind of about class and race and status in the US. And it's um, about this young black woman who's accused of kidnapping the white child that she's babysitting. But it's so well written. And it's again, it's kind of funny and sharp and observant. And the second novel, kind of along similar-ish lines, it's called Come and Get It. So it's set on a university campus in Arkansas, and it follows a similar theme, which is kind of about what are millennials supposed to do with their lives in this economy? Because they are living very different lives, aren't they? And they have very different challenges to us Gen Xers. It's about a research assistant looking for stability. Big Gen X word, isn't it? Yeah, but I just know I'm going to be reading that because I loved my first novel. Do you remember Birdsong, Sebastian Falk? Of course, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Militant, my... Uh... Feminist alter ego would be very cross with me for mentioning a man in this section, but it's the next Sebastian Falk's book. I think this is his 20th book. I did love Birdsong and I am a fan of his writing. And this book, The Seventh Son, is out in May. I'm really fascinated by the plot. Um, it's sold as a child will be born who will change everything. Some reviewers are calling it his greatest novel yet. So brace yourselves for a Another Sebastian Falk reads. So it's about a young academic who offers to carry another woman's child, but she doesn't know about the life-changing consequences that will happen because it involves a scientific boundary-stretching of the ethics, an experiment in a series of IVF treatments, which they keep a secret and don't tell her they've done with the baby. It's, it's set in the Palm Institute, uh, which is run by billionaire entrepreneurs. So this is on billionaire entrepreneurs playing with ethics and our lives, as is playing out nearly all the time. When the baby is born and these differences sort of mark him out, he gets lots of unwanted attention. And that one reviewer said, this book is a spectacular examination of what it is to be human. It asks the question, just because you can do something, does it mean you should? It's set between New York, London, Scottish Highlands, and it's also about unrequited love and unearned power. And I think that's a discussion that just keeps playing out, doesn't it, with all these tech billionaires and everything they're doing. And this is an unearned power. Yes. Yeah. And they hold it over all of us. They've got all that power and we didn't give it to those men and they've got it. So I'm fascinated by this. This is Sebastian Folks, The Seventh Son, out in May. Uh, that's interesting because I always associate him with historical novels. So I quite like the sound of something a bit different. I'm probably wrong if he's written 20. I'm sure they're not all historical novels. Now, I like you because we're always going on about trying to get men to read women and, you know, women authors because they just generally don't. And I had sort of realised that I don't read an awful lot of men authors. No. So my third one I've chosen is by Andrew O'Hagan. You know Andrew, don't you? He wrote that lovely book, Mayflies, which was actually... They made a TV show out of it, I think, last year. It was very good. And this is called Caledonian Road, and it's big 800-pager set in London. It's uh, set across a year, a single year in London, and it's about this art historian uh, called Campbell Flynn, who's also a biographer of Vermeer, and his life comes crashing down, and it's all kind of the build-up to that where all his worlds collide. So then you've got the art scene, academia, fashion, the aristocracy. And of course, Caledonian Road is in North London, sort of King's Cross, runs from King's Cross to... 10 minutes from here. Yeah, just around the corner from you. Cali Road, isn't it? Quite famous, the Caledonian Road. Lots happens on Cali Road. Exactly. So I don't know, it sounds really intriguing. Lots of characters, 
I'm sure lots of horrible people, lots of interesting people. So I think that's going to be a big, because he hasn't written anything for a long time, Andrew O'Hagan. So I think that's going to be one that everyone is talking about. And that is out. You won't want that as an actual book, though, Trish. No, it's too big. My list will be on Audible with that one, won't you? I will, exactly. I can't do. I've got 48 hours of Barbara Streisand at the moment. It's it's, uh, certainly going on a bit on the old Audible. Personally, can't imagine anything worse. (laughs) No, it's quite fascinating. Should we do a couple of quickies? Quickies. Yes. Can I do a couple of my... Morning telly namesake, Lorraine Kelly. Oh, Lorraine. Lorraine, yes. She's got the lovely novel out, The Island Swimmer. Got everything I like in it. It's got Lorraine, it's got islands, it's got swimming. And David Nichols, one day. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Coming out on the telly. His new novel comes out in the summer, You Are Here. Do want to mention the lovely Freya North, uh, who we had on the podcast a couple of seasons ago. Her new novel, The Unfinished Business of Edie Brown, is at. And a mention of the first ever Women's Prize for non-fiction. Non-fiction. Long list comes out in February, short list comes out in March, and the winner in June. So that will be a great list for us to mention, won't it? Yes. Plunder. We'll be plundering that one for ideas and guests, won't be? Um, right, my two quickies. Oh my goodness, so excited. Column Tobin's follow-up to Brooklyn. I think Brooklyn might be one of my all-time favourite books. You've seen the film, haven't you, with Saoirse Ronan? Probably. Probably, about a young Irish girl in the 50s or 60s moving to, um, emigrating to Brooklyn. My God, I absolutely love it. This is the follow-up and it's going to be called Long Island. I mean, I am so excited about this. That's out in May. May, when my birthday is, Lorraine, love this book. When you will be... Two years older than me. Yes, right. Yeah. Technically, two different years. But yes, on my on my birthday list, just saying. All right, put it on the list. And the other one, Shy Creatures is coming out. That's by Claire Chambers. Do you remember Small Pleasures? Oh my God, I love that book. I think that was a big one. Everyone talked about it on our Facebook group. So her new novel, Shy Creatures, is coming out this spring as well. So that is very exciting book news. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. book club today we've got a treat for you an inspiring author who wrote her critically acclaimed debut novel after a dramatic midlife unraveling and spectacular reinvention at the age of 49 jenny godfrey stepped off the corporate ladder giving up a successful career in a FTSE 100 company to realize a childhood dream and write her first book 
The List of Suspicious Things is a heartwarming, poignant, funny rites of passage novel set in Yorkshire in 1979. Both Trish and I loved this gem of a book. It's a nostalgic read for Gen X women and took us back to our childhoods growing up in the Thatcher era. At the book's core is the story of the Yorkshire Ripper murders, which dominated the news for much of the late 70s and early 80s. The headlines touched our hearts and women across the UK all lived under a blanket of fear while Peter Sutcliffe committed 13 murders over five years. Sutcliffe's presence dominated Jenny's childhood years growing up in Yorkshire, but it was only after his arrest in 1981 that she realised how closely their lives had touched. Jenny's engineer father had worked for Sutcliffe, frequently servicing forklift trucks that Sutcliffe often drove. She says, I remember my dad staring open-mouthed at the television and saying, but I know him, I know him. We really think you're going to love this book, and Zoe Ball has picked it for her Radio 2 book club. We're going to be finding out from Jenny how her if-not-now-when moment during a cataclysmic perimenopause prompted her to turn her life upside down and write a novel. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's a thrill to be here. That is super exciting. So I think we should start going back around a decade and start with what you called your change or die moment. Uh, Your perimenopause was really upsetting. So in 2014, you really hit it hard. You had almost every symptom that we now all know about. Can you tell listeners what you went through? because I think many of our listeners will relate to you. And then that moment where you thought, well, this has got to change or it's all going to end. I had been in a 25-year career in HR and therefore was very experienced and very comfortable in my job. But I started to wake up anxious every single day, terrified of the day, terrified of getting up. and. I could not understand where it had come from, especially as I had very few physical symptoms. Nearly all of my symptoms were to do with my mental health. And the anxiety was paralyzing, overpowering. I kept having days off sick and the anxiety moments were followed by real lows. And I'd been an anxious person before and suffered with low mood. This was nothing in comparison to my experience at perimenopause. I felt like I was going insane. That's the only way I can possibly describe it. And I did what a lot of women, I think, at the time did, which is Google it. You know, (laughs) am I going mad? What's wrong with me? Yeah. Yeah. What is going on? And I've got to be honest, that's the first moment that I realized it might be hormonal because perimenopause, menopause, perimenopause kept coming up. And I felt too young because I was 43 at the time. So I thought I'm too young for this, surely. And I also couldn't quite believe how overpowering the symptoms were. Effectively, I resisted (laughs) doing anything about it. Or should I say, I kept tackling it via natural remedies I ran a marathon. (laughs) You know, I even tried to outrun my symptoms. I took antidepressants. I took anxiety medication. And I think I was, again, of the generation of women who were a bit scared of HRT because of messaging when we were younger. Yeah, misinformation. Absolutely. 
And it took a long time for me to actually get on the HRT track, which I did, which I'm so grateful for. But you talk about that change or die moment. While I was trying to sort out my symptoms, I was also having a midlife crisis. That's the only way I can describe. I felt like what I was doing, regardless of these symptoms, no longer represented who or what I am. And I felt like it no longer aligned with my values. And I'd actually started working with an executive coach because I was trying to get my love for my job back. And we'd been working together for about a year when one day he said to me, do you even want to be doing this anymore? And my answer was no. And I didn't hesitate. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't want to be doing that anymore. And so the two things kind of coalesced, I guess, into a sort your physical symptoms out and your hormones out and sort your career out or your future out. And the two things coalesced at the same time. And so I did both. I went on HRT, I went to the Newsom Clinic and I from that moment, started to negotiate my way out of my job and into a completely different life. And I feel like I've been talking forever. So I'll stop there for a second. (laughs) No, I think that's actually a really good jumping off point for the next phase, because I think so many of us women get to the exact point that you describe, but it's what do we do next? How do we make that jump? How do we make the transition? So I think we're, we're really interested to hear because you went down to three days a week. You decided to move to Somerset, took voluntary redundancy, got a job in a bookshop. I mean, that's pretty (laughs) dreamy, isn't it? I think we'd all love that. The dream. But how did you navigate all this? Because that's the lot, isn't it? it? Have you got any advice maybe around how you talk to work, how you went about finding a new home, starting a new in a different, whole different part of the country? So what I'd love to do is say to you both, I handled all this beautifully. And I've got a perfect plan that I would advise everyone to follow. That would not be true. I mean, it was a effectively, I guess, eight years or so it took me to get to the point where I'm at now. The thing I would say to women who are navigating these big life questions while sorting out their hormones as well, is if you can, and this was a really important thing for me, If you can work out what's hormonal and what is real life telling you things should change, that will really help clarify things for you. And that's what really happened to me. Once I got my hormones under under some control, I was able to make a more clear-sighted decision about my future. And that decision was absolutely that I needed to find something else to do with the rest of my life, that HR was no longer fulfilling me, that I didn't want to be in corporate life anymore. And I'm going to be honest, it felt like like I was about to jump off a cliff, giving up all that security. And, you know, I was a person people might know in the industry and It gave me a lot of my sense of self came from my career and my job. But I weighed up the feelings of insecurity and uncertainty with how deeply unhappy I was. And 
I found and I absolutely stand by this. I've never regretted it for a second. I found I prefer uncertainty to deep unhappiness. That's the key, isn't it? And you, it, it was quite a big decision for you because you're 53 now um, and you have said you're child free by choice and you're happily yes. living alone in the middle of nowhere, as you say. <laughs> yes. This is also something society questions. We haven't questioned menopause or perimenopause before, but we're constantly questioning women when they say they're happy on their own and they don't want to have children as they grow older. How have you dealt with that questioning? What advice have you got? And how do you not feel lonely? That's the other thing. I guess working in a bookshop is quite a community, though. Oh, very much so. I mean, working in a bookshop is best job in the world. (laughs) Other than writing, which is obviously what I do alongside that. Yes. (laughs) Again, my midlife crisis was one of real deep self-discovery. And what I discovered is that while I am a learned extrovert, I can be very gregarious. I can chat to people, get on with people, go out and do parties and present things. All of those kind of sociable parts that make up life and make up particularly being a in a corporate job. I'm deeply introverted and I didn't know that. I didn't know that I get my energy or regroup my energy when I'm alone. And I feel like I'm making up for lost time in having all the alone time I could possibly want in my 50s to make up for all the socialising I did in my 40s. And I never get lonely. I just don't. I did have a dog. Unfortunately, Rocco died, but I will get another. I think having a dog makes a massive difference. Having my lovely part-time job in a bookshop makes a difference, but I never get lonely. And with children then, that's something you've never felt was part of your life or meant to be part of your life. I know lots of women talk about the ticking clock, Mm. But my clock just never ticked. It really didn't. I mean, I also have a, an elder sibling who has quite severe learning and physical disabilities. It is a genetic syndrome. There is a risk that I carry it. But did that make a difference? I don't think it did. No, I think if I'd really wanted to have children, I would have gone ahead regardless. I am absolutely child-free by choice. So... Your debut novel, The List of Suspicious Things, is coming out, uh, well, it's out now, and um, it's an amazing book. We absolutely loved it. But before we come on to talk about it, I I love this idea of you working in a bookshop when this book is about to come out, and it's probably going to be a bestseller. (laughs) I hope so. It's going to be huge. Everybody's talking about it. How do you think that's going to feel? So I have actually pressed pause on my book selling until after the launch for those very reasons. But I have to say, over Christmas, we received in the shop extracts of the list of suspicious things to give to customers as teasers. And I was giggling, giving it to customers and saying, there's going to be this book out in February. And I wrote it and they would all kind of do this kind of double take and, of course, end up taking an extract away with them. It's actually been a real joy being both a bookseller and a writer because you learn 
both sides of what is essentially a business. And I get to talk about my book as well as my love of other books all day. It happened quite quickly, didn't it? So it's your first novel and you wrote it, I think, in 2020 during the pandemic, didn't you? And it was about six months to write and then it was picked up by Hutchinson Heinemann, which is an arm of Penguin, wasn't it? How did you celebrate when they said, I mean, you must have been beside yourself. First novel, huge publisher says yes. So on the day that my novel went out on submission, I did not read the email from my agent. Basically, I was in that midlife moment of my mum had been taken into hospital that day. So I was racing off to the hospital to make sure that she was okay. And I just thought, you know what, I'll read the email from my agent about who, which editors it's gone to when I've sorted mum out. There's no rush. It'll be a while. Anyway, on the same day, I was driving back from the hospital and I just remember distinctly the sun was shining. Mum was okay. I was feeling relaxed for the first time. And the phone rang and it was my agent who basically said, are you driving, Jenny? I was like, yes. And she said, could you pull over, please? And I pulled over and eight hours after the book had gone on submission, we got our first offer from Penguin. I am still in shock about that. And the next day I spent the day in a hospital car park having calls with various editors about the book. And it still feels like a very surreal moment for me. So I didn't celebrate because I was in (laughs) flipping leggings and an old (laughs) T-shirt. Let's talk about the plot now because there's so much going on here, but it feels like one big nostalgia noodle. Regular listeners of the show will know that we're always going back in time. But it, it just felt like our childhoods, but obviously with one of the most disturbing, horrific crimes uh, woven through it. So you you tell us about it and how it came about. Yes. Yeah, so in 2019, there was a BAFTA award-winning documentary called The Yorkshire Ripper Files on the BBC. And I happened to watch it. I'm a real true crime person. I happened to watch it and it took me instantly back to a childhood I very rarely think about. I was born and raised in West Yorkshire and grew up in an environment very like the environment in the book. And one of my most vivid childhood memories is of the day that Peter Sutcliffe was caught and accused of being the Yorkshire Ripper, because it turns out that my dad knew him. And what I remember about that day is him saying over and over again, but I know him, I know him. And my dad used to service forklift trucks at the depot where Peter Sutcliffe worked. And he ran off to get his service records that Peter Sutcliffe had signed to show us that he really knew this man. And again, I very rarely think about that, but I was so transported by that documentary. I realised that I really wanted to write about that place, that time, what it was like growing up, not just from a nostalgic perspective, but reflecting the light and the darkness of the time. And that's where the idea came from. Yeah. And it is a lovely light book as well. It really does tell stories of friendships and coming of age. I'd love you. And we ask all our lovely authors to do this. If you could read um, from the book, 
picked a little chapter. If you want to pop it in context and then read it, I think it sort of sums up the mood and attitude of the era for women. The premise of the book is Miv and Sharon are two 12-year-old girls who decide that they're going to catch this infamous murderer. They want to make Yorkshire safe again. And so they make a list of suspicious things. And among those suspicious things is an area in Leeds called Chapeltown, which is where a number of the murders took place. And the two girls take themselves off to Chapeltown to investigate it. And they come across a woman there called Mags. Are you a prostitute? Sharon's blurted question shocked me so much I was struck mute again. But the woman threw her head back and laughed, a rich, throaty sound. I was mesmerised. I had an image in my mind of what a prostitute looked like, partially informed by photos of the Ripper's victims, partially informed by an active imagination. I pictured them as either bottle-blonde, red-lipped sirens or downtrodden, unkempt, haggard-looking older women. She was neither. Where did a young lady like you learn that word? You look like butter wouldn't melt, she said, still looking Sharon up and down. Well, not that it's any of your business, but yes, I am. And so will you be if you keep hanging round here. Now get yourselves off home. All this was delivered without a smile and ended with a dismissive nod down the road, indicating that we should leave. The sky chose that moment to break. Large drops of cold, heavy rain started to splatter onto the pavement and I could see the woman's eyes roll as she muttered to herself, fuck's sake, then to us, follow me. We hurried after her as she lifted her coat over her head and headed down the street, eventually stopping outside a small shop with a red and white awning. There was a phone box on the pavement covered in cards with shapely silhouettes on them, offering personal services. Wait here, she commanded, and stepped into the phone box, pulling out a purse from her handbag as she did so and looking around before she opened it up. We did as we were told, too scared to do anything else, and stood shivering under the awning. After she'd finished her call, she ushered us into the shop, where the man behind the counter nodded at her and reached behind him for a packet of cigarettes. And I'll get these, she added, picking up a packet of opal fruits, which she handed to us. That's to keep you quiet for the next ten minutes. Thank you, we both muttered, scared of saying anything that might make her swear at us again. We left the shop and the three of us stood under the awning, watching the rain pour down. Cars passed us, sending splashes of water our way and sometimes honking at us. One man shouted, Is it three for two weeks, Max? And laughed as she stuck two fingers up at him. As I stared down the street, hoping to see the ripper, I caught sight of a face I recognised. I couldn't place who it was at first. I was fooled by the clothes he was wearing, the combination of a sheepskin jacket and jeans. He looked younger, fashionable. I was about to grab Sharon's arm to point him out when he headed into a boarded-up shop front with the words private shop printed above it. Maybe it was seeing him out of the safety and sanctity of the church, but it was unmistakably our vicar, Mr Spencer. Maybe he wasn't so righteous after all. I think that sort of sums it up, doesn't it, how women are treated and the hypocrisy of the men at the time. Absolutely right. It's funny, while I was writing the book, it was during lockdown, as you said, but Sarah Everard was murdered. And there was a real outpouring of stories from women about their fear and about their treatment and about which victims are deemed pressworthy and which aren't. And I found it so interesting. 
because of course I'm writing about a time significantly in the past and not as much has changed as we might hope. Also, you wrote about the racism in Yorkshire at the time as well and the kind of horrendous attitude to people with mental health issues. It feels like we've tried to come a long way, but we sort of haven't, have we? Did you have to do a ton of research for all of that? Or was it just all in your head as a Gen X woman? No, I did a lot of of research around it. And I pretty much re-immersed myself in the 1970s during that time. And it was really fascinating because, yes, things have changed. Thank goodness they've changed. They haven't changed as much as perhaps I might want and as much as they can. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, because to have this point of view from, from a small child because we were all that age when this was happening. But um, I think probably many of us will have watched The Long Shadow recently as well on TV. Did you watch that show? And yeah, the way it the police process, the way it treated the women. It was appalling, wasn't it? It really was. I didn't watch The Long Shadow, but only because I'd been so immersed in the story that I felt as though I'm going to wait a little while to watch The Long Shadow. But interestingly, the Yorkshire Ripper Files, the documentary that sparked it all off, that was absolutely about the investigation and about the mistakes that the police made as a consequence of their thinking about women. And that's something I really wanted to reflect in the book. It sounds like it's not uplifting, but it really is a very (laughs) funny, uplifting book. I I just loved Miv. (laughs) And I loved all the kind of nostalgia noodles because you talk about bottled milk, fish and chips and tea as a posh treat. I mean, I grew up in a tiny village in Cornwall and I guess it was probably on the moors, right on the edge of the moors, similar to... Uh, Yorkshire as well, that tight-knit community where everyone knows everyone's business. But um, yeah, I came to London. So I was a working class woman who would have gone to university if I hadn't gone. I'd been the first in my uh, family to go if I'd gone. And you were the first to go to university. I was, yes, I was. I guess it's amazing to see that you've managed to write what will be a best-selling book as a working class woman from the the middle of nowhere in Yorkshire. (laughs) It's really interesting because If I had listened to what people said before I wrote the book, I just wouldn't have bothered trying because people said that working class stories are interesting, stories from the North don't sell, you can't use dialect in books, you know, it's not commercial enough. And I'm really glad that I have a really stubborn streak and decided that I'd carry on and do it anyway. And I felt really strongly about the story, but I also do have a really stubborn streak. And sometimes I think that we talk ourselves out of doing these things from fear or being scared of failure, which I definitely am, by the way. I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of courageous person. But it turns out I have not had a single person along this journey say to me, we're not interested in this story, you'll never sell this book. In fact, all I've met with are open doors. And I guess I I feel like I, as a person from a working class background, a northerner, did I limit myself in terms of what I could achieve? Because I wanted to be a writer at a much younger age, but I didn't think it was for people like me. And it turns out it really is for people like me. 
That's um, really inspiring, and I'm sure we probably have a lot of would-be novelists listening to to this uh, show. In terms of the practicalities, how did you go about it? How did you get an agent? How did that happen, the actual practical steps that somebody might need to take? The first thing to do, the first and most important thing to do is write the book. It's the most obvious thing to say, but the number of would-be novelists, as you've mentioned, that I have come across who just have not finished the books that they've started. So that's kind of the the number one piece of advice I'd give everyone is is kind of just write the book. And I did make the investment of going on a course, which is run by Curtis Brown Creative. And I did a three-month Write Your Novel program with them during lockdown. And it was amazing. And then after that, Writers go through, if you want to be traditionally published, which I very much did, so to be published by a Penguin or a Macmillan or whoever and not self-publish, you have to go through this horrendous process (laughs) called querying where you send out examples of your work to literary agents and then they don't reply to you. That's basically, that's that's the process in a summary. Doing an audition. It's exactly that, just on paper. But I was also, again, I mean, I do feel a little bit like I've had the luckiest experience. After I did my Curtis Brown course, they sent an example of our work out to various literary agents and an incredible woman called Nell Andrew, who represents people like Elizabeth Day, Sarah Collins, Bryony Gordon. She saw an example of the list of suspicious things and emailed me to say, can I see it? And within 24 hours, I had an agent. It was incredible. Not just any old agent. <laughs> How do your parents feel about what's going on? What's Because they must have thought, oh, she's giving up this massive career to go and you know, live in, in the middle of nowhere, work in a bookshop. She went to university. She did all those things. Now she's going backwards. What what do they think? So it's really interesting. At first, and not just my parents, but lots of people in my life thought I'd lost it. <laughs> and no one said it to my face, but I could kind of feel that whole, oh, no, what is she doing? This is really worrying. And I could feel people's fear for me sort of through the telephone lines. But actually now, certainly for my dad in particular, he is so unbelievably proud. And I think part of that comes from being a dad of that generation. He never really understood what I did for a living anyway. Because what's HR? It's not like a real job in his mind. (laughs) But writing a book that you can see and feel and touch and a book that's inspired by an experience he had. He's so proud. And my mum, she sort of half gets it and half still, I think, thinks I've gone mad. But I'm just rolling with it. And um, you've talked about being comfortable living with uncertainty as as a priority of doing something you don't like. Obviously, you're about to hit this tsunami or you're in the middle of this tsunami (laughs) around the list of suspicious things. Have you got any other plans, hopes, dreams for what happens next? So already the list of suspicious things has changed my life, which is phenomenal to me and surreal to me. So it's already changed my life. And I'm doing things like talking to you, wonderful women, that I wouldn't have expected to be doing even a year ago. 
And so I'm a little bit in the place of I'm just going to enjoy every single moment of this. I am writing a, another book. I would love to see the list of suspicious things on screen. And I'm kind of up for adapting it myself. I do feel a bit at the moment like I'm just going to go where the energy is and see where life takes me, which makes me sound a little bit like a hippie. And I am the opposite of that. However, life has taught me over the last 10 years that the best thing I can do is lean into what's happening. Finally, because it's our book club special, what are you reading? What's on your bedside cabinet at the moment? Well, I have just finished and I keep talking about this book. And I don't know why I'm recommending it because it gave me three sleepless nights. But there is an incredible thriller called Night Watching by Tracy Sierra, which is also out this month. And it is her debut novel. And it is one of the most original, thoughtful, taught thrillers without being graphic in any way, shape or form that I've ever read. So I'd highly recommend, if you like a crime novel, I'd highly recommend Night Watching by Tracy Sierra. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the show. You're so welcome. You're both so lovely. Thank you. Bobbity bobbity bo. <laughs> I don't know, is that a special jingle? Here we are at Nostalgia Noodle. We've been inspired by the lovely Jenny, haven't we, in that trip back down memory lane into our yes. 1980s childhood. What I liked particularly and what filled me with a warm, warm glow was that talk of tea. Oh, yes. You know when you used to come in from school, particularly if you lived in a small rural place, you had a bit of a trek getting home, and you'd have something nice. You'd have a big, thick white sandwich, loads of butter, and then your parents would just go, I don't know where they went, and you would just go out for hours on your own before actual dinner. Yes, you would. An actual dinner might be a treat, and if it was a treat, it would be fish and chips, and we would have fish and chips. Then we'd actually sit down and have fish and chips because that was... The treat, Dad would go and get it in the car and come back. I'm just remembering that whole lovely time of tea, going off on your own, doing God knows what, coming back and then having a nice dinner as well. Well, that's nice because I would say that I used to dread it slightly because I knew dinner would be something like liver and bacon. Oh, yeah, I know. And my mum's cooking. It was only the treat dinners I looked forward to. So the treats were few and far between. But just a quickie as well from, because so many noodles in that book, but um, I've forgotten about iced gems. Do you remember little packets of iced gems, the little biscuit with the sort of hard, I don't know what, sugary pink little blue and white dollops on top. I love those. Because I've had 17,000 children, ice gems have stayed in my life for quite a long time. They still make them? Okay. Yeah, good. I can't go near them though, Trish, because I once ate so many as a child that I was violently sick oh. in the car. So I can't even yes. look at that because the multicoloured gooeyness of what occurred afterwards is too upsetting for me. Stuffed them all down, didn't you? Stuffed them all down. Can I, I've got a suggestion. You know your uh, Nostalgia Noodle intro bar? Could you get your bass player from next door, your neighbour, to do a... I think that might be beyond Diedrich's skill set, I have to say. Okay, we won't ask. I quite like that idea of him doing a little bass intro for you. Anyway, such silliness as always brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we hope you can join us again next week. We hope that you'll come and join us on our Facebook group. We hope you'll come join us on our Substack. And we hope you'll come and join us at the San Moritz Hotel 
in March, don't we? It's all going on. Very excited for everyone to come and have a little cold water dip with me in March. Yes, indeed. Goodbye. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.